Good morning, and uh, welcome to our service here at Brighton Rose. And to those of you engaging with us online, you're most very welcome too. My prayer is that we might all know we're in God's presence and discover something more of His will in our lives. We continue this morning in our series on Nehemiah, which I don't know about you, I'm really enjoying. And, uh, and today we shall be focusing on and around chapter 5. Uh, but first, our call to worship is one where we shall call one another to come together into God's presence, not just for ourselves, but for His purposes. So if you would like to read that which is in yellow. Gather us in, mysterious maker God, that being close to you, we will better understand your creation. Weave us into one sweet saviour of all, that living your ways, we will create a community of faith and peace. Gather us in, powerful spirit of renewal, that treasuring the past, we will boldly shape the future. Weave us into one, holy one in three, that all together we may be the signs of your presence, the weavers of your communities, and the witness to your coming. Gather us in this day so that we might gather strength and wisdom from you. Amen. So, let's stand and sing and remind ourselves that we worship a God in the business of restoration, restoring and renewal, and let's praise and thank Him for that. As we sing, when I was lost, let's stand together. Thank you. 
Creator God, the work of your hands is breathtaking. How vast is the beauty you display in the land and skies. Lord, come open my eyes afresh each day to take in the glory of your creative power. Loving God, you have designed with such care every aspect of life. Intricate yet astounding creatures come alive in your masterwork, and each day, moment by moment, you renew and restore, making beautiful things. Almighty God, I surrender my life to you because you are the giver of life. You are the master builder, the creative governor, the artistic genius, the author of love. I dwell with thanks. In your kingdom. Amen. Let's continue in our worship as we sing our next two songs, for which you can feel free to sit, stand, or dance if you feel so inclined, as the Lord leads. And the first of which is Come, let us sing of our wonderful love. Holy day, 
psalm about knowing the security of God. But sadly, there are so many in this world who are feeling very vulnerable and at a loss. At the, at the start of the first lockdown, uh, a BRBC WhatsApp prayer group was set up. And if you'd like to be a part of it, then just let me know afterwards. Uh, but uh, this last week, um, I was quite touched and moved um, as people highlighted faith that they were aware of in the world who are feeling particularly threatened at the moment. So let's bring their needs and others uh, to God in prayer. Father God, you know and love all, for you have created all. We bring to you the country of Afghanistan and all those who feel their life threatened. We pray for the sister of Effie's friend, who is amongst those desperately trying to flee Kabul with her three children. for those in positions of authority, that compassion might rule their decision-making. Lord, we are at a loss for words about this situation and don't know what to say. In silence now, we offer you the prayers of our hearts. We bring to you those pastors in India that have been sentenced to prison for the sake of the gospel and also been receiving death threats. And for their congregations and all those within India that face discrimination and persecution because they know and love you. for those who feel so threatened by your people and want to strike out at them. Stay their hand. Pour out your love upon them. Lord, we are at a loss for words about this situation and don't know what to say. In the silence now, we offer you the prayers of our hearts. for all those across the world recently affected by earthquakes, wildfires, and hurricanes. As nature responds to climate change, we see what devastation and havoc it causes. The loss of livelihood, loss of home, habitat, and life. We bring you those who are trying to stem that and help and, and help others, putting themselves at risk by doing so. Lord, we're at a loss for words about this situation. We don't know what to say. In the silence now, we offer you the prayers of our hearts. And Lord, now with so much going on in the world, going on in our lives, 
We bring you our town, our church, our family, and friends. You know what is on our hearts, and we bring this to you now in prayer. Thank you that you are a God who isn't distant, but draws alongside us so that we can find security living under the shadow of your wing. May this be the experience of all those who have brought to you in prayer. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. And so now we turn to God's Word, looking at Nehemiah 5, starting at verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still, others were saying, We have had to borrow money to pay the king's taxes on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I, Nehemiah, heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, You are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses and also the interest you are charging over them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Before David comes and shares with us what God has laid upon his heart 
that is saying, Lord, you have my heart. Perhaps we may suited for this one as a point of dedication. Lord, you have my heart, and I will search for yours. As we prepare to hear from God what he has laid on David's heart, let us be prepared to search for God's heart. What is it that God is saying to you today? Lord God, I pray that you would bless David, bless the words that he says, and as we search for your heart, Lord, may we be responsive to what you would have, what you would have David say. Speak through him, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Prayers live up to. Let's see how, see how we do. It was back in, way back in the 1980s when the method of recruitment into medium and large corporations radically changed. 
Up to then, it was quite simple. Simple. If you saw a, a job or something advertising trains, if you brush up your CV, you float in and you sit back, hoping you can short this to the class interview. But this was Margaret Thatcher's trip. And board directors looking around on the train noticed that the people who were amassing an enormous pile, making money hand over fist, and creating their empires, were people with unconventional backgrounds. Young upstarts like a chap called Richard Branson. I mean, he'd left school at 16, he had no qualifications, no employment history or whatever, and to have insight to injury, it was reputed always that he was managing this multi-million empire from the comfort of his sofa. Then there was another young chap in London who again left at 16. He was in the 1980s probably selecting his first helicopter for personal transport, and he started off market trading on market stalls in London with a chap called Adam Sugar. So things had to change because, of course, what you had to do was not just select people with A-levels and all that sort of thing. What you had to do was get people in and subject them to psychometric testing. <laughs> do any of you remember psychometric testing? Thank you very much indeed. Do you remember Belvin? Do you remember Myers Ritz? There we are, lots of nodding going on. I've given up on the number of times I've sat in my and the idea was to actually find out what sort of, if you had management potential or you had leadership potential, and if you did, what sort of, what sort of management style you might have and whether it would fit the organisation. And so it was, it was back in 1980, I was going into my room, this is traditional sort of style of offices in those days, I went into my room and there sitting in a square and very new on my blotter was a paper. Now, of course, in that period, in the 1980s, the presses were rolling and out of it were coming all sorts of crazy books. I mean, the old favourite was How to Win Friends and Influence People, Competitive Advantage, The Psychology of Seven, of the Seven, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, The Yucky World of Calling Over, all this sort of stuff, and there on my desk, was a book that the, the person at the very top of my empire, the empire, had, had laid upon all desks of all managers that morning with the instruction that it should be read, understood, and implemented. And there was a degree of sort of expectation. Well, I slipped to it and I binged it. It was absolutely loathsome. It was mostly about disciplining your staff and all that sort of stuff. It was all sticks and no carrots. Yes, I had staff working for me, but I loved them dearly, and I needed support and encouragement and, and setting targets, and, and it was great fun. Very, very little effort to take one of my staff and say, you know, it's funny, they need to just go on their ways. But more than that, I had read the very best book world has to offer on leadership and management, and I do commend it to all of you. Do get hold of a copy and read it. It's only on about 20 times. In it, you will read about 
successful negotiation, project planning, staff motivation, quality management, governance, it's all there. It's an absolute page turner, practical study, and it's an autobiography. First of all, Nehemiah was a visionary believer. He had this extraordinary idea that he wanted to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. What an amazing thing. Well, of course, you see visionary leaders plotting into the dragon's den, if you watch that program. And you, you suddenly realize that actually people can have their visions, but whether they can actually ever turn them into reality is another completely different affair. The amazing thing with Nehemiah is that he was not only a visionary leader, he also turned out to be an exceedingly competent manager. Let's just review. No, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going back a bit. We're doing we're into revision here. You remember he's the cup bearer, not in the sense of wine, but this was actually a high office in the court of Artaxerxes, the king. Yes, he, just to give the background, Artaxerxes, by the way, had earlier given an edict, clearly written. You've got to look in Ezra to see the edict. It, it, it was that nothing should be built in that dreadful, rebellious city of Jerusalem. And in particular, the walls must not be built. So here we see Nehemiah popping into the room to tend to Artaxerxes. And he's got to ask the very thing that he knows the king has outlawed. Yes, he finally comes out with it to Artaxerxes. I want a sabbatical. Why do you want a sabbatical? I want to go and rebuild the walls. Yes. Now, when you read that, what do you think is going on? Have you figured it out? Worked it out. Please bear with me. I don't mean to. I'm walking on eggshells here. I know a lot of people will read Nehemiah's prayer and they will consider that to be a miracle. I actually don't think it's a miracle. I've been on that course on successful negotiation. And what Nehemiah didn't realize is that he was actually not holding all the bargaining chips. It was many, many years ago now, sadly, there's no point. I had a young woman who came into my room. She 
was an important member of our team and exceedingly competent. I wouldn't say he was irreplaceable, but if he had left, it would be very difficult to replace her, recruit another, and train her to deliver what she was delivering. She was a very important part of the organisation. Uh, she was much liked and more fond of her, as I say, exceedingly competent and trusted. Um, she was more. But she said to me, David, I am alone in the place, and now I'm in my family in Australia. I want extra time off, not my leaving time, and I want to go back to Australia, and I want to spend time in there to just see all my friends, old friends, and my family. What was I going to say? If you say no, you thought you'd ruin that loyalty. It's gone. All that loyalty is gone in the end. Her work was suffer, and you also know very well that she still put that slide to it. She just said, I know just one month before table. So when you're sitting there and you get that hand in front of you, you're worried about it. What do you do? You ask, what do you ask? What do you want to ask? How long are you going to be around? That's all you're going to do. Nothing else to do, is it? You over a barrel. No. When Lee Meyer delivered his first of all, I'll take and said, I want a sabbatical, I want to enjoy the music of Jerusalem. What did Arthur Xerxes ask? Instantly, he said, the king with a queen sitting beside him asked me, How little long will your journey take? When will you get back? Gives it away, doesn't it? He is totally dependent upon Nehemiah. He can't do without him. And as for that lobbying that came in from all of those uh, provincial rulers around Jerusalem, insisting that the walls of Jerusalem shouldn't be built, who does Artaxerxes trust? Who is he going to trust? Does he trust in that rock over 1,000 miles away? Or does he trust his loyal and trust his servant, Nehemiah? This is really quick enough. He's suddenly realizing, my goodness, if I get Jerusalem re-fortified and I get him installed there as governor, who's my eyes and ears? So now, you have to forgive me, but I don't think that's a negotiation. Nehemiah didn't spot it. But our tax services had come so to depend on him, it was a certain act. Um, the way Nehemiah put it, because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. The greatest hand of God was not on our Artaxerxes, squeezing that concession out of him. It was on Nehemiah. It's what God had made Nehemiah to be. He was deeply trusted and trustworthy. He was deeply loyal. Who was ever afraid of that special man? Okay, now let's go. Thank you.
when he ended, when he went to Jerusalem, which is as say, he was probably about two months on my journey. Did he immediately explain what he was going to do? He went out good. And that's three days ago. And he slipped out at night to check the walls out. He wasn't just wandering around as a tourist. In his mind, he's busy getting into project planning. He's doing things that nobody had done before. He took a few men with him, and I can guess what he was doing. He was looking for ash rocks. Ash rocks are rectangular rocks, and he was looking for those amongst the rubble. Because if he was going to rebuild the wall, he needed to have regular stones outside the wall, and particularly in London and Bolton, which are nice and lower. So he was building his mind the feasibility stuff, project planning. It's not in in fact, um, it's not a print. He took a shortcut in the wall. He never attempted to put back the entire wall that the Babylonians had destroyed. He took a shortcut up the central valley. There's no shame in that. Jesus said, No one built a tower without first making sure you can see it. And there's no glory to God if you take on projects and don't finish them. So he worked out. Project planning. That's using your head, not just hoping that God is going to pull it straight for a miracle. And this is the last bit. I just love this. <laughs> you sort of think, well, what's he going to do next? Is he going to get centralised personnel to start recruiting stonemasons? And are they going to be working around the wall clockwise or anti clockwise? No, what he does, but it is. He works out who the stakeholder is for each piece of land in the eastern hill. And if you were a householder in a house here, who would allocate you that bit of wall? It was your responsibility to get that bit of wall right. Well, first of all, that's time management. It means you could roll out of bed in the morning and start building, and you'd be working your socks off, and you might pop back for lunch, but you're straight back on the job, and you work until sundown. Good time management. But the other thing is, you're not going to bust the job, are you? Not when that's the wall right next to your house. You're going to get it right. So Nehemiah is clever. He's a clever man. Knows, for example, he's not going to have to shift stone around because, of course, precisely the quantities that you need are still where they fell. He just needs to allocate the people. And they were going to do that bit of wall well, weren't they? Because you didn't want to come home one evening and find that the, the marauding hall had broken through your wall and you're sitting in the front room. Quality control is instantly solved. In chapter 5, we see Nehemiah moving from a position of being a civil engineer 
becoming governor of Jerusalem. He's demonstrating that he's got rather skills. There's more he can offer. But mostly it all stems from this deep-seated fact of integrity. He's a man of great integrity. I've got a bit of a problem now to take some time to reflect on what God has just said to us. As a part of that, I'd like us to sing such a well-known hymn, Just As I Am. And I suggest that before that we remain seated, you might want to sing, but it may be that you'd rather just shut your eyes and, uh, and offer up to God what God has come to you.
God, we want to be a people who are on their knees in prayer. We come. Whatever barrier we may feel there is, Not for our glory or our vanity, but for your source. We come. Let's close with a song that makes powerfully clear. No matter our circumstance, God remains unswervingly and unfathomably constant. There is a hope. Let's stand. as a blessing upon us all. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Amen.
Jesus, we 